0: Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into Romans chapter 2 and uh, verse 12. Okay? Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you give us to gather together and to study and to learn your word. Uh, help us, Lord, to, to be conscious of uh, us in each of these uh, areas that we study today and realize that uh, this is written to the church at Rome, is also written to the church here. And, uh, Father, that uh, we can apply things to our life, help it to change our life, give us understanding through the work of your Spirit, and, Father, that uh, what uh, is taught today would be honoring to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Romans, where were we? I'm going to leave the cap off that because I think I'm going to need water today. Um, doing a little background, if we jump back uh, a page or so in your Bible to Romans chapter 1 <clears throat> and verse 18, we see this beginning of uh, a topic uh, right after Paul in, in, in two verses has a real concise Definition of the of salvation and who that salvation is—that's Jesus Christ. He he defines each of those words we looked at. He's uh, somewhere in scripture. In scripture, he's he's defined for each of those words the power and the salvation, etc., etc. That uh, was in verse sixteen, and in verse seventeen, he compiled that when he talks about the righteousness of God that was revealed. Um, and that righteousness, we said, was God's glory on display. This righteousness is talked about there is God's glory on display. And how is it on display? And it leads very well into what's revealed. It's God has revealed it from faith to faith. Now, depending on the on the Bible you have, some will say, and I think the NIV is most accurate there, I believe, if my memory serves me right, it's a faith first to last. In other words, it's the same faith that we see in the Garden of Eden after the sin and what they were looking forward to, and now it's that same faith here that he's addressing the church at Rome at as they look back to the life and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is salvation. He is the person of salvation. That's very important for us to always remember when we're talking to people. And so he talks there about that God's glory is on display, and we're going to see that magnified in today's lesson too. It's on display, and then he ended that, he says, the righteous uh, shall live by faith. Now if you have a, a King James, or you go back to the King James, the just shall live by faith, and I think, I think an accurate translation of that that is, does not harm the, the, the text at all, but at least to me makes it clear, is the just out of his faith, shall live. We're going to see that later in the lesson today, too, so I don't want to jump ahead of myself. The just out of his faith shall live. How does your life, how does my life, measure up to what Jesus Christ has done for us? How are we living out our faith? You know, a lot of people say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. How, does that, how is that exercised in your life? There has to be proof. That's the proof text of our salvation. It's how that's lived out. And that's a process over a lifetime. And I can remember when I got saved and knew nothing. Now I know a little bit more. But how, does my li- how has my life changed over the last years? And, and, and there's, there's people I'm close to that I'll ask that to. Have you seen a change in my life over the last years? A change that is exhibiting uh, the faith that God has given us. We have to ask ourselves that. And then he jumps right in, he says, for the wrath of God. And now he's spending a long section here on the wrath of God. And what does he say about the wrath of God? The wrath of God has come because truth is suppressed. Now what does that mean? You can't suppress something you didn't know. So there has to be knowledge in order to suppress it. And a lack of knowledge, there's nothing to suppress. And he gives us that. He says in verse 9, for what can be known about God is plain to them. And we're not going to go back through the whole thing, but what's known is plain. And what have they done in suppressing the truth? Three things he talks about. He talks about the fact of they exchanged. They exchanged the glory of God for idols. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They exchanged the normal truth normal processes and use of our bodies for that which is at not normal. And he goes through that whole thing, and in each, each of those three things, what does he say? He says it three times. God gave them up. God gave them up. What did he give them up to? Their fleshly desires. He gave them what they wanted. He gave them what they wanted. And that is true of all peoples, everybody that's ever been born in this world, and everybody that is born now, and everybody that will be. It's the, it's the same for all of them. I don't care where they are, and we're going to see that again in our lesson today, as it's, it's, it's kind of fleshed out. So, we saw this, that God gave them up to immorality, amorality. but guess what? The judgment of the moral man was the same, early chapter 2. So, whether it's the immoral, the amoral, or moral, they're all judged the same. They're all under judgment, because none of them has measured up to the righteousness of God that he demands. And because of that, because of that, God sent an offering, a propitiation. Somebody, a substitute for, our, for God's wrath upon us, he sent, and, and we understand that. And remember, through this whole thing, I have to keep reminding myself, especially what we went through last week and now this week, God's writing to a church, or uh, Paul's writing to a church here. He's writing to Christians in a church. Does that mean everybody in that church is saved? We don't know that. But he's writing to Christians. And I believe what he's doing is twofold. One, he's telling them where they came from. And secondly, he's telling them what they're subject to revert to. Because we all have besetting sins that we have to guard against, that we're, we're, we're subject to go back to. And we've seen failures in, in Christendom over and over because of people who have went back to what they were. And, uh, and he's warning against that. It's also useful as they talk to others and they understand where they are in life. So let's take a look at today. I've got a question to ask you. And I'm, I'm sometimes not real good at making questions very clear. But when you think of the law, what do you think of, and how many do you think of? When you think of the law, what do you think of? What comes to your mind right away? Ten commandments. Pardon? The Ten, commandments. Ten commandments. Okay, the law. That part of a, of the what? Written law. Part of the written law. Yeah, Mike. Okay, And I would put that part under, under, under the written law, the instruction given to Israel. Is there another law? Well, let's see. Let's see. We'll let the Bible tell us. The principle we're going to operate on, I'm going to take this in four chunks as we get, go all the way to verse uh, 20 of chapter 3. I'm going to take this in four chunks. And the, uh, the principle that we're operating off of here is verse 11 in chapter 2. And he starts with that word for. And we're going to see that that word for several times here. And we not only see it written, but we see it understood in some of the application that we have here. For God shows no partiality. He's talking about the Jew and the Gentile. There's no partiality with God concerning the Jew and the Gentile. And now he goes into the verses 12 through 16 that we're going to start with and They've always been hard for me to understand. I got some help on that from Elvin McLean in his book on Romans. But we're talking here in these first verses, there's no respect of persons. And how does he, how does he split that up? So we'll take this a little bit uh, verse by verse just to help. Maybe that'll help you with, with the flow of this. Because in, in verse 12, we see, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so what's he talking about? Because then he goes on from there with instruction in this. Well, I think a better way to read that is if we take that verse in half. So we look at verse 12, and we're going to read that first half, and then we're going to jump to verse 14 and on. Because who's he talking about when he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Who's he talking about? The Gentiles. And he explains that in verse fourteen. But in between there he has a second half of twelve and, and third of course we have it we have it numbered, he just wrote it as a letter. But so this is understanding of that first half of the verse, he says in verse fourteen, for that's the connector. That's the connector to the first half of that verse. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Now, he's talking two different laws there. The first one, the Gentiles who do not have the law, he's talking about the written law, the law of Moses, if you will. We'll, we'll apply it that way. The law of Moses. But then when he goes on, he's not talking, every time he says law, he's not talking about the written law of Moses. He's talking about the fact that they become a, 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 a law unto themselves. And let me ask, how, how does that look if, if we look through cultures of the world? Now, when I was a kid... And uh, people would talk, and I didn't go to a a Bible-preaching church, but they'd talk about these people who've never heard the word. Now, the assumption was that we as Americans are Christians, and then you have the rest of the world. That was the assumption that's operated under. And how can God send them to hell? The other question that was always asked is, okay, are people judged on what they know? Are people judged on what they know? Well, no, I don't think that <laughs> that would be very good because uh, then we're relying on, in this case, of course, God would be the judge, and he's going to judge on what you know. Because So if you say, oh, I don't know anything about the Bible, well, then I can still get into heaven. Those types of things. So as, as this is, is placed out here, What do we see in cultures around the world that would help us understand where they are from a system of law? Do some of these cultures, in uh, in, let's say in countries who have not been evangelized, do they have rules and regulations? Yes. Some of them are a lot lot more harsher than we are. Do some of them have rules and regulations on, on theft? Yeah, you lose your hand if you're caught stealing. Do some have it on adultery? Very much so. There might be a lot of other perversion, sexual perversion, but they have rules and regulations on adultery. Do some of them have rules and regulations on, on honoring parents? My, my mom and dad, they own this big three-story house in Rochester, just down from uh, St. Mary's and on the, on the left side, on the north side. It's still there. And they rented out rooms. Well, one of the renters was a guy from Turkey. And he was in the process of bringing people from Turkey, family at a time, over and then trying to get them acclimated. So he was bringing some families into Rochester. And he asked my mom and dad if they'd be willing to help this family with the English and questions they'd have, and they're going to live next door in a basement apartment. And I said, yeah, they would. And they became friends, because it used to frustrate my kids. we go there for Christmas, and uh, here, King, what? Adnan. Adnan and... Uh, oh, good grief, I had the word. That doesn't make any difference. Auden and Sh- Shani, uh, and, their, and their kids were there. And it kind of irritated my kids. It was like, okay, we're sharing the grandparents here. Well, what happened over time, the, the oldest boy got to be a, an early teenager. And my dad went over to their house. They had bought a house right behind him by that time. My dad went over to their house uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, to help do, do something. And... Uh, this boy came out the front door and he was mouthing off and being very obstinate to his mom. And my dad decided he's going to correct him. Well, this, this early teen beat my dad up. <laughs> my dad, I mean, he was in his 80s. And he beat my dad up and left him on the ground there, all bloodied. And they end up in court over this. And uh, my dad was absolved for anything, I think partly because my mom baked cookies for the judge. <laughs> and uh, took him up to the, the judge and, well, I wanted to bring you a treat of homemade cookies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it didn't end there. Because now all of a sudden, Adnan was asking my dad if he could borrow a little money because they wanted to go back to Turkey. What do you think he was doing? He wanted to take his son back to Turkey because what would they do there? They'd kill him. Because he dishonored the aged and he dishonored the family, and that's that's death in Turkey. So do they honor parents and stuff there? And they, or the older people? Yes, they do. And that's how. That's and of course he never he never went. Um, and my folks found this out because Shanai finally came over and told them, "Well, the reason they want to go back to Turkey is they're going to kill kill uh, Erjan. The family will do it. So there is an order in in manhood. Why? I think it's because of an innate natural knowledge. Because in look, verse fifteen it says they show the work of the law what in their hearts, in their conscience, in their thoughts, and." It's, it's an innate knowledge that God gave us. Now, when the fall took place, and, and I, I look at the Bible from a dispensational, the different economies of time, and how God dealt with people, and how man had responsibility in that. Well, Adam and Eve sinned. What's what, and If you're a dispensationalist, the next dispensation is conscience. God gave man a conscience, and an innate knowledge that there is a God and they have a responsibility to respond to that. And that's what, that's what Paul is telling the, these Gentiles here. And it's, uh, it, it, it's the thoughts. They, they accuse and excuse. Yeah? I think we should tie this back to chapter 1, verses 19, 20, and 21, also where God tells them that he has given them uh, a knowledge of him. Exactly. And I, I was actually going to do that, but I looked at the clock and decided I wasn't going to go back there. But he's right; we can go back, and we go back to that same thing, with, with, uh, verses sixteen and seventeen, and what God is what God has done and provided for man, and an understanding. So, it's there; it's in it's in man; it's in their hearts; it's in their conscience; it's in their thought. And If you go on after conscience with uh, how God dealt with man, he had he had uh, he had, uh, he, had uh, um, he had the. Uh, I just had it in my head. That's all right. We'll just forget it. Government. He came with government. Then he came with promise. And he came with law. So he has all these ways, and these things all are traceable to the history of man. So that's a very important part of this. And the, the, the bottom line is, is here. Neither the Jew or the Gentile has ever reached the standard of righteousness that God wants. Because now in verse the second half of verse 12, it says, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. We saw that in James. So the matter of the doers of the law, well, they hadn't done that either. The Jews hadn't measured up to that. And he, he comes to verse 16, and he kind of ties it together. He says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So Jew or Gentile is headed for the same thing, and that's what? The judgment. Now, he's, he's talking to a church here. So i got to believe the main application there is the judgment seat of Christ. Because there obviously was probably some difficulty yet in this church with the Jews and who they thought they were and the Gentiles and who the Jews thought the Gentiles were. And we'll see that here in a little bit. But there, there's, there's an issue there, but it's written to the church. But judgment's also there at the, judgment, at the great white throne judgment for the lost of all time. That's after the kingdom. So however you you believe that application is there, he's writing to a church and he's talking to these people that there's going to be a judgment that applies to us. How we treat each other, how we act towards each other. Do we hold animosities? Do we hold on to little bits of dislikes and stuff amongst ourselves? God knows all that, and we'll be judged by that. Well, then we go on to verses 17 through 29. There's nine... nine, um, Distinguishing marks of the Jewish people, and I title this: "Jesus are the Jews are the Jews responsible to the Gentiles? Do the Jews have a responsibility to us, the Gentiles? We know we have a responsibility to them. And uh, in the Church Age, we're a we're a Gentile church. We have a responsibility to Jews. That's why we support Jewish ministries, and we have to have an understanding. If we ever had a Jewish person visit here, we talk to him." What are we dealing with? Where is their mindset? And we want to ask those questions. But verses seventeen and on. But if you call yourself a Jew, because now you know he hit the Gentiles with uh, let's say three verses there. But now he goes on to, uh, to the Jew and talks to them for a long process here again into chapter three about their responsibility and what what are the privileges that the Jews have enjoyed? Well, you can read them in verse seventeen through. Uh, through 20, as I, I'm just going to mention them off. One, they possess the name of a Jew. That, that, that came from the tribe of Judah. Uh, they were named a Jew. That's, a, that's distinct as God's chosen people. Two, they, re, they rely on the law of Moses. They are proud that they have they alone have possessed the law of Moses, but the problem was they relied on that law as their salvation. And their description of the law—we know how the Pharisees uh, have corrupted that and 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 really distorted the law as God had provided. But the Jewish people rely on that; it's totally a work situation, and they rely on it for deliverance. Three, they boast. Now, uh, pride and boasting—we've uh, all been guilty of that. But in this case, it can be bad; it can be good because we do know that Paul boasted in First uh, and Second Corinthians. But it was it was it was good. So there's there's a place where it's good to understand who you are. Uh, we can be we can have we can boast the fact if you're saved that we know Jesus Christ is our Savior and we have salvation and our future is uh, is is already taken care of by the grace of God. Now to be prideful about that isn't right, but we can boast that if that's how the word can be used. They also knew God's will. It says. They know his will. They knew God's will. They had all that instruction, and yet they weren't following it. Five, they approved what's excellent, or approved what's, what's uh, superior. They had the, the ability to distinguish the things that really matter. God showed them that. It was all God providing this. But we're talking here, Paul's talking to them from a standpoint that they become prideful in this. This became a part of their who they were, and it was a prideful, uh, pridefulness. The last four uh, things here involved the Jews' sense of people and their superiority to the people. They were to guide the blind. They were the light to those in darkness. And their application to that is to Gentiles. Now, is that, is that a proper view? Were they a, a, supposed to be a guide to the blind and a light in darkness? They considered themselves instructors the of the world, Well, I don't know if I didn't look in the bulletin. The pastor's going to get that today or not in Isaiah 42. But verses 6 and 7, that's exactly what it tells them they need to be. They have a responsibility to the nations, it says there. The Jews have that responsibility. The last two were, they're instructors of of the foolish and they're teachers of children or infants. That, again, was their attitude towards Gentiles. That they were fools and that they were very infantile in their whole religious concept because of their idol worship. And Paul's telling them over and over here, you're the same thing. You have these distinguishing things in your life, but you're not following them. So what's his conclusion? Well, if you go down to verse 29, and he goes on, he says, you then, in verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Uh, you who boast in the law and dishonor God by breaking the law. Uh, and it says, um, you abhor idols, but do you rob temples? So there's, there's, there's a series of questions there. Now, why did he pick those three things? I'm not sure. My, 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 my own, uh, if you want to call it gut feeling is, these were things that the Jews had been guilty of. And it was known that they are guilty of. Now when it talks about robbing temples, I believe what that's alluding to is a practice that was uh, in in Deuteronomy that was uh, uh, absolved by God not to do. And that's that if you find, you you go into the nations like the Canaan land and you find all these idolatrous altars and they have gold and silver and precious stones in in their idols. You don't rob those idols. You don't take them and have them for some kind of gain. You just burn them. You destroy it. Well, obviously, they were doing that. At some point in time, the Jews were taking those and keeping it for their own selfish gain. And, and he's, he's naming that here. Paul is naming that. And he goes on in verse 24. He says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So here's this this whole the Gentile nations. And God is telling the Jewish people here, you know what? The way you've behaved and the way you've acted with all these distinguishing things that I've given you, that whole list of nine, and the way you've behaved in that, you have blasphemed my name before the Gentile nations. Now, I would guess that, especially in this church, the saved Jews were probably very humbled by this. And they probably changed their attitude and how they viewed their fellow Gentile believers in this church, because Paul hit them pretty hard. So the one thing here that they were responsible for, of course, was the law. And that's what he's alluding to here in these verses 17 through 24. Now he goes on to circumcision. We're not going to spend a lot of time there because I want to get into chapter 3. But in circumcision... When was circumcision given? Abraham. It was given to Abraham, and it was given as what? Pardon? Yes, a sign to the Jews as God's chosen chosen nation. Now, when was that given? Anybody remember the date? About 2100 BC. When was the law given? 14, 1450. In the, between 14 and 1500 in that range. So we're talking about a considerable time from the, uh, the circumcision and the call of Abraham and the promises to Abraham and the law. Now we went through that in Galatians. So you know the whole thing was the law isn't sufficient and in Galatians, these Gentile churches, he's telling them, Because the Jewish people were coming up from Jerusalem and trying to convey to them the importance of the law. And he's saying, no, it's your father Abraham. We go back to that point. That's the unilateral covenant. That means a one-sided covenant. There was nothing in that covenant that said, Abraham, I will do this for you if. There was no condition God put Abraham to sleep. God walked through the, 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 uh, uh, the offering. And he walked through the offering. And he made these promises to Abraham. It's unilateral. It's still there today. And it's a complete covenant of God to Abraham for the nations. That includes us. Thank God for that. It includes all the nations. He'll be a blessing to all the nations. So circumcision was important and it had a place, but it had no place outside of faith. And that's what he's trying to get across here in verses 25 and on. And we're going to go right to the end in verse 28. and says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Now, we had a spirit here that I said some would capitalize earlier, and then pastor uh, mentioned that, too, in, in his message. That is not. That was not supposed to be a capitalized spirit. Here it is. And it's pneuma. And he's talking about the spirit, the pneuma, versus the letter, which is grama. So we have the spirit of God here, and the circumcision of the heart is what matters to God. And not the letter of the law, because they can't keep it. It's there for a guide, but nobody can keep it. So the spirit of God is what's important here. And he says, his praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision, uh, he covers that in just a few short verses, but circumcision really doesn't mean anything. It meant something to the Jew, because it was from their father Abraham, just like the law was from Moses, But they didn't keep the things that were important. They just dealt on the things that they saw were important to them. And it's really a conclusion there at the end of chapter 2 of what we saw in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, concerning the salvation in Jesus Christ. That is what matters. It's a matter of the heart. And if you're saved today, you've circumcised your heart. You've, you've, You've given yourself over to Jesus. And he is your savior. Does it show? Does it show? Because we started out, and I know there was some disagreement on that, but faith and obedience, and we're going to see it again, you can't separate them. We're going to see that throughout Romans. You can't separate the two. If, you're, if you have faith, there's going to be obedience to the word of God. If you have faith, or I have faith, we are going to obey the word of God when it crosses our path. Do we slip? Do we, do we fail? Do we sin? Yes. Yes but there's a rebound that comes back. Why? Because we truly have faith. So let's look at chapter three here, uh, the first 20 verses real quickly. There's a series of anticipated questions. I got an interesting one. Was there ever a time when the Jews didn't circumcise? Yeah. there was a point where there was a Yes, there was a mass there. Now, where I was thinking of is the Maccabean period, the intertestamental period, in the 160 B.C.s, because the Jews had become Hellenized, many of them. And in order to fit in with the Hellenization, they chose to disregard the law of Moses. Disregard, and not all of them, but many of them. Disregard circumcision, and fall under the idolatry of the Gentile peoples. And that happened, of course, with Alexander the Great coming through and Hellenizing. Everybody had to learn the the, 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 la- the same language, the cultures, uh, the religion was all supposed to be tied in the same. And that was that was uh, come to a head with Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember he's the one that slaughtered the pig on the altar, desecrated the altar of God, and he made circumcision a capital offense. If you circumcise your child, that's a capital offense. And so during that time, you saw a lot of that you saw a lot of that go away. Now the real devout Jews held to it. They pushed back, they fought, and uh, and it came back into the Jewish custom and of course that's, I think, part of the reason you see the Jews so tied into circumcision in the New Testament and, uh, and their, their, their view of the law, because they almost lost that. They almost lost that during that time of the intertestamental period. So in chapter 3 here, we see a series of anticipated questions that Paul gets um, from the Jews. I don't think this is actual questions. I think these are what he's anticipating. As he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with. And then he goes in. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And we're forever thankful to them for that. The Old Testament prophets and the written word of God. The Jews were entrusted with that. That's why God chose them as as a nation. And the, the, But the Jews' lack of faith is in contrast to God's faithfulness in the next verse. Because he says, what, is, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And that's a reference back, I believe, to the Abrahamic covenant. No matter how unfaithful the Jews have gotten, and we know historically it, it's happened, and it was, it was present right here in this New Testament era, because we're looking here at Romans uh, written in 57 AD, about nine years. Uh, Galatians was in 49, and uh, James about 47 AD. So we're well past the crucifixion of Christ, and we're into the church age, you know, about 25 years. And during this time, the Jews are still fighting the battle of works, salvation, but they say they are entrusting the law. But the question then is because of their lack of faithfulness, is God unfaithful? And the answer is no. His covenant with Abraham is still in place. And he goes on. What if some uh, Pardon me. Uh, By no means, he says in verse 4, let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 51. And that's part of David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. So on, they are unfaithful to their covenant obligations, and those obligations could never uh, come to a place of righteousness that satisfied God, but God was still faithful. And pray, praise God for that. And then uh, we look at, at uh, verse uh, 5. They're another question. Um, it goes on, that if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So they're saying, okay, if our unrighteousness In not following the law and disobedient to God, if that is the reason why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to extend God's righteousness to offset our lack of righteousness, then why should we be punished? Because if we hadn't done that, Jesus Christ wouldn't have come. The righteousness of God. And that righteousness of God, I believe, goes back to chapter 1, verse 17, where I'm talking about God's righteous glory is on display. It's on display in his salvation to all mankind. And that's what they're asking here. So they're basically saying if, uh, if their faithfulness, faithfulness in the, in their, uh, to their covenant obligation brought about the new covenant in Christ's blood, why should we be judged for that? Why should we be under God's wrath? And in the Jewish mind, they weren't. They were God's chosen people. And Paul is, is really laying it out here, and he's going to lay, lay it out all the way through verse 20 here that we're going to look at. That you know what? Their condemnation is just. Look in verse 8. Their condemnation is just. So God's judgment is holy and just and righteous to both the Jew and the Gentile. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged all, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he has a whole litany here of, uh, of statements that he gives. Uh, and these are coming from, I, I'm not going to turn there, but you can look them up. There are, many of them are in the Psalms. Uh, there's some in Isaiah. There's uh, one, I believe, in Jeremiah. None is righteous, no, not one. He's establishing, he's he's leading up now to the whole topic of justification. That's where we are next week, starting in verse 21. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now he's quoting Old Testament scriptures that these Jews should know. And the application isn't pointing at the Gentiles. The application is to all, Jews and Gentiles. Their throat is an open sepulcher or grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, what did, that, what did verse 9 say? Jews. Are you any better off? And this whole litany is applied to the Jews. And it all comes out of the Old Testament that they claim they know so well. And Paul was a Pharisee. He knew all of this, and he didn't abide by it either until he got saved. So this whole litany here of telling the Jews. Now, we shouldn't sit here as Gentiles and say, oh, yeah, see, I always knew those Jews were a different bunch. No. Because he says all. In the end, he says all. So let's, let's close this out in verse, uh, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So the first part of that phrase is the Jews. Those who are under the law. But I think It's expanded, because I think it applies to both laws. I believe it applies to the Jewish law, and I might be wrong on this, the Jewish law, but I think it also applies to the innate knowledge that we are given, which is part of the law of the Gentiles. Because he he says that, they're they're accountable to God, or or pardon me, that uh, speaks to those who are under the law, But then he goes on, and he talks about the whole world. And uh, if you got notes there from John MacArthur, uh, he'd see it that way too. That the Jew who received the written law of Moses is guilty, and the Gentiles who have the laws written on their heart and their conscience and their thoughts are guilty. It applies to everybody. And this is a neat thing when you think about it, because he's dealing here with a church that's primary Gentile, but there are Jews in it. And you know what? What he's been giving so far through 320 is to, to the effect to draw them together. We kind of get very comfortable with positive preaching, don't we? We can sit there and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But how about when there's judgment preaching? And we see ourselves in that, and we kind of get squirmy and uncomfortable. We need to be made uncomfortable, and we're in a society that we we view everything as very comfortable. This was uncomfortable to both Jews and Gentiles. It was uncomfortable. And he says, You are all, the whole world is held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, what did, what did Paul say in Galatians chapter 3 about the, about the law? What was it? Anybody remember that? It was a what to bring us to Christ. It was a schoolmaster. Now, there's different terms used. Guardian, I think, is probably what the ESV would have. But it's a schoolmaster. Now, that, to me, is a very good picture. Because the schoolmaster had the attention of the students, and if, he, if they didn't, they made sure they, they got the attention of the students. Why? Because it was important. And he's saying here the law is that schoolmaster. It's that schoolmaster, that, that lesson, if you will, that instruction that was to bring you to Christ. So the Jew can't glory in the law of Moses and give everything, all the credit back to Moses and say That's sufficient. Because we, we obey the law of Moses. No, you don't. And besides that, it was never meant to be the final thing. That's why you had a sacrificial system that operated every day. And that once a year, when the high priest went in and poured the blood over the mercy seat. Why? Because they are appealing to the future mercy seat, which is Jesus Christ. That was the purpose. They, they didn't understand that. That had been lost. And it was lost before the 400 years of uh, no communication, the intertestinal period. It was lost before that. So here, the, the Galatians is so clear on that. It's the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That was to the Gentile churches. This is the Gentile churches, but it applies to the Jew. That's why the whole issue of law is there, and I think applies to both parties. So, there we are. The whole world is held accountable before God. Anybody have something quick? Otherwise, we're going to close on time for once. Anybody? Okay, next week, we'll go on verse 21, and we'll deal with the issue of justification. Thank you so much.